Our scripture reading this morning will be from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and with houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God who you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in his midst as a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you and from off the face of the earth. The Ten Commandments are God's first revelation of his will for an entire nation of people, and to my mind, they are still the finest example of a moral national law ever given. The Ten Commandments are so ubiquitous that we use them to describe other things. You ever thought about that? I can remember when I was a kid and we went to a, took a vacation in a national park somewhere here in the States, and I remember seeing a sign posted that was the Ten Commandments of Backcountry Camping. And it made sense, you know, because they're so ubiquitous. In other contexts, I've seen the Ten Commandments of marriage, the Ten Commandments of buying a house, the, the Ten Commandments of Pokemon, the Ten Commandments of social media. Uh, and if you ever, if growing up you ever used this particular hymnal in your church, um, if you ever got a little bit bored during the service and started just flipping through the cover pages, you may remember discovering inside the cover of this the Ten Commandments of a songbook among which are, thou shalt not use me as a fan, thou shalt not borrow me without returning me to my owner, and thou shalt not use me to hit the babies. That's really in this book. I, I, you, ever, you wonder how some stuff gets published. But anyway, um, in all of those cases, the designation of Ten Commandments is meant to communicate that these are the basic and yet these are the most important principles in a particular area of life. And obviously they use that language because that's exactly what God's Ten Commandments do. They give us the basic and yet most important, most fundamental principles for having a covenant with the people, between the people of Israel and their God. The Ten Commandments are God's guidelines for a society redeemed by His power and built by His hand. So, I want to study the Ten with you in the coming weeks. I want us to see why God gave these particular principles. Because, while they may not be binding on us in a very technical sense, they are so rich, so rich with truth for us as we strive to live like the spiritual children of Israel. Now, I think it's really interesting that in the original language, in the Hebrew, uh, the phrase that we typically translate the Ten Commandments can also be translated as the Ten Words or the Ten Statements. And so Jews typically refer to them even today as the Ten Words because of the original language. And I'm going to do that some this morning. And I want to do two things with these ten words. Number one, I want to introduce them to you as a whole set and tell you why we're studying them. And then number two, I want to delve into the first one, the one on which the whole rest of the ten depends. I want to delve into number one this morning and give us a little bit of time to process that. So let's begin by reading the words of God. Exodus chapter 20, let's start in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the, Sabbath day, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or his ox or anything that is your neighbor's. You know, these ten foundational words... Simple and familiar as all of that may be, these ten words serve as the preamble to more than 600 other commands that will follow in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These ten are the sturdy, poured foundation, the footings on which the rest of the law stands. And if only for the strength and the stability that these ten offer, they are worthy of our study just because they're so strong. These ten have stood the test of time and their principles endure on into the present covenant that we have with God in Christ. And so I want to take a minute this morning and just introduce these to you with two foundational facts about the whole set of ten words, two foundational facts that are both found in the first two verses. The first thing that's important to realize about the ten words, the ten commandments, is who they are from. Verse 1 says, these are the words of God. God spoke all these words. And then in verse 2, he gives his covenant name. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. I am your God. This is important because it asserts the real origin of these commandments. These aren't from Moses. These commandments are not from a, a brain trust of anti-Egypt you know, revolutionaries, right? These commandments aren't from the world's most educated philosophers. These are from God. And because they are from God, from the God who delivered his people from slavery, they demand the loyalty of the people. These laws are not just to form a great society, although in just a second I want to show you how great a society these ten laws can build. But they're not just for that. What they are for is to keep God's people holy like God is holy. 
That's what they're for. They, and so the people have an obligation to keep the commandments because they are predicated on a rich and powerful history with this God who spoke these laws himself. And so number one, they're important because of who they're from. And number two, they're important because of when they are given. The timing of these laws tells us an awful lot about their purpose. Now, I admit that what I'm about to show you is a very short history lesson, but nonetheless, it is a history lesson in verse 2. In verse 2, the Lord, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I get, again, very short. That's one historical fact, but it is history that matters nonetheless. And it matters because when we arrive here in Exodus chapter 20, it's only been two months since God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. It's been less than 60 days since they walked out of the most powerful borders on the face of the planet. They have just become a free people, y'all. It's just now happened to them, and that's supremely exciting for them. But the reality is, and you know this to be true if you think about any history at all, that people who are free who are suddenly given freedom with no law at all, with no governing authority of any kind, that people will soon become enslaved again. If we're given freedom with no law, with no morals, we will soon become enslaved again. Sometimes to a power that's greater than ourselves, but more often we become enslaved to our own chaotic impulses when we have no morals to govern us. That's just the human way. That's just the way that our fallen nature behaves. And so... God comes to the people of Israel two months after receiving their freedom and he gives them a law that will make them into more than freed slaves. He's going to make them into a model moral society. And that's really what the Ten Commandments do. They lay a foundation for a really good society. And they do that from the lowest units of that society to the highest units of that society. From the individual to the marriage, to the parent-child relationship, to the relationships between neighbors, to behaviors of the courts and of the kings and of the nation itself in their overall devotion to God. These ten seemingly simple principles touch all of those realms of national societal identity. Now, many people have noted, and I think this is valuable to some degree, but many people have noted that these laws, when the Ten Commandments were given, that they were, in that time, revolutionary concepts, especially to the ancient Israelites, and they would have been to any other ancient people that they were given to, right? These were, these were brand new ideas. These were incredible, life-shaping things. And so many people have said, you know, even if these laws weren't perfect, Against the backdrop of ancient societies, they made the Israelites into something pretty special. And I'm going to go ahead and admit to you that that is largely true. These ten laws did make the Israelites special. God himself said that would happen. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You want to turn your Bible over there and read. If not, you can just listen along. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5, the Lord said, See, I have taught you statutes and rules. Keep them and do them because, check this out, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
In verse 8 of that chapter, he says, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so, yeah, I mean, the Ten Commandments, they were revolutionary in their time for the Israelites. But let's broaden our perspective a little bit. And let's take a look at these Ten Commandments, not as what they were as a revolutionary concept, but I think if we broaden our scope a little bit, we'll easily realize that these ten words, even if they were only kept in the most technical letter of the law kind of way, these ten words would revolutionize most societies today. <laughs> these aren't ancient laws. These are eternal laws that would change us today because humans are still just as human as we ever were. You think about some of these commandments. You got your Bible still open, Exodus 20? Kind of scan through some of them with me. Think about some of these and their implications. The command, and toward the end there, that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If that command is applied, it increases the reliability of a society's court system. In many cases, the truth of a witness's testimony is the difference between death for the guilty and life for the innocent. What you really need in a court system is truth, true witnesses. And then the command to not commit adultery. That increases the reliability of marriage for both men and for women, which thereby creates a more equitable society. The same is true with the command to honor your father and your mother. There's equality built into these laws. It makes a society that much better. And then there's the command that you shall not murder. Maybe revolutionary at the time it was given, but let's just be honest. Tell me that wouldn't revolutionize our country's abortion industry if that law were applied to our nation. And then you take number three. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Sound like a revolutionary concept to an ancient society? Yes. But does it sound like a revolutionary concept to our society? Yeah. Yeah, because if God's very name is trivialized, then how far is the jump until the identity and the power and the salvation of God become a trivial thing? You take the Ten Commandments, and yes, they may have been revolutionary in their time, but let's not relegate them to the ancients as though somehow we're better than the ancients. We're not. And these laws would revolutionize any society because we are all in need of the only divine one, for him to teach us to overcome our flesh. And these laws are a crucial part of his plan to do that. One modern conservative philosopher recently pointed out that these laws, and really the rest of the Mosaic law that followed them, the other 600 commands, they represent the world's first true foray into ethical monotheism. Monotheism, one God, ethical, morals, these commands represent the world's first foray into that. And they do that because they are given by the one God who is the objective, objective, single, unchanging source of what is right and the knowledge of what is wrong. And so that standard then, these ten words, understanding that that's what they're for, that leads us into talking about the first of the Ten Commandments. And I want to make sure that this morning what we do is pick up the whole first commandment. Typically, when you see the commandments listed, and that's, this is true including most of our English printings of the Bible, 
The first commandment in the list begins with the words, you shall have no other gods before me. But for our purposes this morning, let's go ahead and just point out the first command, the whole idea behind it begins with God saying, I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. And when you see the context of the whole statement, then I think we have some even more powerful truths than just the ending here. Because there is a statement here of really two ideas. Sorry for the big words here, but they're helpful in this case. What you have in this first, this first statement, this first word from God, is an indicative and an imperative. And so, and basically what that means is you have one statement of what is and one statement of what should be. Okay? You have an indicative and an imperative. There is a statement of what is true followed by a command of what ought to be. And so I want to use the rest of our time to investigate those two segments of this first word. The indicative of this first word, and we've already mentioned this really, is that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, the first part of that, the first part of that indicative we've already mentioned, and so let's just graze by it one more time here very quickly. The Lord is reminding them of his identity, in fact, of his own name. And that reminder is the most foundational idea to the whole set of these 10 and all 600 other commandments. But it's also the idea, the most foundational idea to the first imperative. When he says, I am Yahweh your God, we may not often realize it, but in calling himself by that name, God has already declared, I am your only God. Do you remember what the name Yahweh means? It comes to us from uh, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. Remember this story, right? And, and Moses asked the Lord, when I go to the children of Israel and I tell them we're going to come out of Egypt, and they ask me, who sent you? What shall I tell them? What shall I tell them is this God's name? And he says, my name is Yahweh. I am. That is his name. Now that's a, partic that's a very special use of language in the Hebrew there. That really doesn't come across in English. Because you am here right now, right? You, you can just say that. I am at Eastland this morning. And you are, that's true. You am in this room at this time. But when God says that I am, he doesn't just mean that I am right now. He means that I am always, which is really, really crazy stuff to think about, okay? But when God says I am, there's never been a time when God wasn't. There was plenty of time when you weren't, but there's never been a time when God wasn't. And there will never be a time when God isn't because God am, I'm sorry for the, toy, the bad grammar there, but it makes a point. And so when God says, I am Yahweh, your God, th there's no time that belongs to another God. And if there's no time that belongs to another God, then there can be no other God. Because we live in time, it all belongs to him. The past, the present, and the future is where God is. And there is no other God that that can be said about. 
It is just the God of the Bible. Which means that when he says, I am, he's precluded the possibility of any other gods ever at all. He is, and no other God can be. He is above all, and he is beyond all, and yet he is with his people. Which is the second half of this indicative, that I brought you out of the house of slavery. It is really interesting to me. That the first command, the first word doesn't say, I am Yahweh your God who created the world. You better listen to me or else, (laughs) right? It could say that. It would sound kind of right to begin with, I created everything that makes me God. But he doesn't begin with that. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. He puts their whole discussion, their whole relationship in terms of his being the deliverer and the savior and the redeemer. Because God is a God and he is the only God who gives people freedom. There is no other God who does that. This God, Yahweh God, must be worshipped alone. Because he is the only God who is able to give that. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes. So let's just leave it there and keep moving for a second. That's the indicative, okay? That's the first part of this great word. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now let's take a look at what the imperative of that idea is. If that is true about God, then our response must be to have no other gods before him. And that's the second half of what we need to note here in the first word. Now there's already an immediate contrast built into that, right? When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, the contrast is... Exactly what it says. No gods that come ahead of God. No of Yahweh. There are no gods that should be worshipped more ardently and seen as more powerful and given more credit than Yahweh God. And so there's a contrast there between him and everything else. But I also think it's really interesting that it's kind of built into the same language there that what you have is a comparison. He says no other gods with me. So there's a difference there. But essentially, you will find out through the rest of the 10 and through the rest of the law itself that he says there should be no other gods alongside me. I'm not I'm not willing to share <laughs> because God himself, this God, Yahweh is too great to share his glory with another. And so, there's no room. There's no room for a God that supersedes him and there's no room for a God to stand beside him and for us to attempt to worship that God either. And so, this is what we're left with. We're left with the choice between him and nothing. (laughs) And isn't that always the choice when it comes to idolatry? You're left between the choice of worshiping one true, believable, reliable God or Nothing. Utter disappointment, utter failure, and matter of fact, what you're left with is the option of going back to slavery. Now, is this a temptation for us? Does that commandment have value in our modern lives living in Jesus Christ, or was it just for the Israelites building their brand new society? I think you know the answer to that. 
Does this commandment have a relevancy in our modern lives? Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Listen, we get warnings all over the New Testament to abstain from idolatry and remain faithful to God. Those warnings are found in the epistles that Paul wrote with Sosthenes and Timothy and Silas and in Peter's first epistle. They're found all over the New Testament that we do not give ourselves to idols. And so we are warned constantly to not give our lives to them. Now, sometimes when you find that in the New Testament, it means that the people are being commanded even then and therefore us today not to bow down and venerate a statue of another god. And let's be real, there are still places in the world and there are still places here in our city where that kind of activity takes place, where people do bow down to a statue of their god. Again, don't think that these are warnings for primitive ancient people. These are for us too. But I think more often than that, more often than we would run into that problem, we need to make sure that we don't worship the things that our society has turned into gods. I think even with minimal reflection on our lives and on our culture, it's easy to see that we too have a major problem with idolatry. Maybe in a more conceptual way, but not in any less serious kind of way. There are a couple of well-worn paths when it comes to explaining how that works. I remember, I remember the preacher um, who uh, was with our congregation for most of my formative years. Uh, whenever he would talk about idolatry, his default explanation was to talk about how, um, how much time we spend in front of our TVs and uh, that our time staring into the, uh, into the electronic abyss uh, could be compared to the amount of time that people spent worshiping the idols they had created. And you know what? There's a valid point to be made there. There is. Uh, we, we can make the same, or the same applications to our phones and our tablets, you know, 15 years later after he made his about the TV. It's the same thing, and it's a valid warning. And we should be careful not to let that become an idol in our lives. So that's one well-worn path here. Number two, number two, the second one is that we usually jump to point out that while we, you know, our society, we would never bow down to worship physical idols of stone or clay, but we very often make idols out of our careers or out of money or other such things by giving all of our time to that and missing worship services. And you know what? Again, valid warning. It's a valid warning to all of that, and it should, we should be mindful of such things. But can I tell you what I think are the far more dangerous idols in our time? Like all of history's most dangerous idols, the ones that are most dangerous to us are the gods of ideas. And while they are most often, while they are often worshipped with a particular method or through a particular image or at a particular location, the, behind, the idea behind the God is always what's the most dangerous aspect of that God. It's not the statue that's the most dangerous. It's the idea behind it. And such is the case with the idols that we are tempted to serve. Our temptation is to serve the idols of status and popularity. Now, these are powerful gods in our time. And these gods are served by some powerful underlings like the God of non-confrontation, the God of cowardice, the God of acquiescence. They're served by the gods of sexual immorality, the God of status, the God of sexiness, the God of good hair, good health, and good humor, right? These are the under gods that serve the gods of status and popularity. And our temptation to worship these gods runs really, really deep. Little things and big things, there's all kinds of ways that we are tempted to serve the gods of status and popularity. 
And secondly, we are tempted to serve the gods of comfort and safety. When we make Christianity, we talk about Christianity as though it means mitigating your risks, right? What you're trying to do is live a peaceful and quiet life. That's what Christianity is all about. Can I remind you that in the context where that phrase is used in the Bible, what we are told to do is pray that our national leaders will give us a peaceful and quiet life. We are not told to pursue a peaceful and quiet life. What we're told is to pursue God. And you know what? That comes with risks. That comes with dangerous situations at times. That comes with getting out of our comfort zones. And so to worship the God, to say that Christianity should be about giving us comfort. No, that misses the point. That, misses, that is a God that we have replaced the true God with. Christianity is about serving God in all of his wildness and glory. And so we are tempted to serve these gods, but we better refuse the temptation. And then we are tempted to serve the gods of entertainment and pleasure. And I mentioned this just a minute ago. But I think the idea behind this is the dangerous part, not so much the cell phone as it is the idea behind how we use the cell phone. We kind of live in an age where whatever we're doing, we want it to be engaging, right? That's the key word of any event in our lives. It better be engaging. And so challenging will be okay as long as challenging is fun and engaging and, and you know, gives us some sort of entertainment out of it. It's like the people I talk to that they, they talk about working out and they say, oh, I hate running. I hate running. The only way that I can run is if I could chase a basketball. Then I can run, right? Well, that's fine. And, it's, and in, in, you know, health and fitness, that's no big deal there. But, but when we take that attitude and we bring it into matters of religion and matters of spirituality, oh, I just hate prayer unless I have something to pray for. Oh, hang on a minute. And I just hate reading the Bible unless I'm reading it for something. Oh, hang on a minute. Then we're getting into some really dangerous stuff there. When everything has to be engaging and what we want out of a worship service is engagement and what we want out of the scripture is engagement and what we want out of prayer is engaging life-changing feelings. Listen, when we're chasing those feelings, we're not chasing God. If we chase God, we will often run into those feelings, but do not switch them because one of those is idolatry and one of those is godliness. And I think that's worth me pointing out here at this point because you look at those three things that we just gave you there. Those three gods that we are tempted to serve. And, and several of those are things that God will actually give to us. And so it's not that the thing itself is a problem. It is the pursuit of the thing that is the problem. And so we dare not let any of God's blessings replace God himself. Because serving the real God, yeah, it's going to be hard sometimes, but it will always be worth it. Which is why the biggest God that we have to resist, the, the, the hardest temptation that we have to resist, is to serve the God of self. Ultimately, this is the God that we all serve when we sin. It's always about the self. And so when, when the Holy Spirit talks about how we are tempted, he says that we are tempted by the lust of our flesh. Our flesh. We are tempted by the lust of our eyes, and we are tempted by the boastful pride of our lives. Okay, in all of these, in all of these, the God that we are tempted to serve is the self, and that God cannot exist alongside, and especially cannot exist ahead of, the God of the Bible. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I got a little bit more than I want to tell you about in all of this. And so if you want to keep that family report out and make a few notes, this might be a good time to do that. The real problem with all of those gods that we serve, and really the problem with any other god other than Yahweh himself, goes back to that idea that he brought us out of the house of slavery. That he brought the Israelites out of the house of slavery. You know, the reality is, there is only one God who loves freedom as much as the God of the Bible. And it is the God of the Bible. He is the only one who wants to give his people freedom. Every other God will make us slaves. We will become slaves to our own passions, and that's a master that can never be satisfied. Or or we'll become slaves to doubt, that's a master that, that just keeps life continually out of our grasp. We become slaves to the whims of the world, that's a master that's always changing, that's unpredictable. Or we become masters, or rather we become slaves to our money, and that's a God that will always leave us when we need him the most. Right? In all of these cases, what we become when we serve any other God is a slave. But what God does, the God of the Bible, what he does is bring freedom to his people. We always become like what we worship. And, we, and if we worship something basic and on our level, we inevitably become more basic and on a lower level. But when we worship a God who is as high and exalted as Yahweh God... He pulls us toward himself. And so as one of my mentors is wont to say, an idol is anything that holds your heart other than Yahweh God. And any idol will enslave you, whether it's the idol of love or money or status or health or adventure, anything that is our treasure in this life will inevitably distract us from the true freedom and blessing that we could have If we had been worshiping Yahweh alone. And so, as Rachel blessed the house of her father by removing the idols from it, as Gideon blessed his hometown by tearing down the altar to Baal, as Josiah blessed the land by burning the sanctuaries and the altars and burning the bones of the priests who had served these idols... As Jesus himself blessed the temple by throwing out those people who had made an idol of their money, we will have blessed lives when we rid our lives of every God except for Yahweh God. We will have blessed families when we rid our homes of every idol and make room for the worship and love of Yahweh only. We will have a blessed world if we strive to get rid of the idols that people worship so they can worship Yahweh only. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. May God give us strength and may he give us the humility to keep this fundamental command in our time, as his people were commanded to keep it in ancient time. You know, it's really interesting to me how much of the Bible is woven so seamlessly together. 
The more you study the Bible, the more of its teaching starts to make sense as a cohesive unit. The whole plan that God put together to do essentially one thing. And I think that's particularly the case when it comes to this first command in the ten words. There's a definite connection here between destroying idols and cleansing a temple and letting the power of God wash away our sins in the waters of baptism. Still have your Bible out? How about Colossians chapter 3 real quick? In one of his letters, Paul says that baptism is our death and resurrection, just like Christ's death and resurrection. And when you get to Colossians chapter 3, you start reading in the beginning there, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. Now scan down to verse 5, put to death. Remember, death, burial, resurrection, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's still one of the things that baptism must wash away from us. We come to Christ by faith in His saving power and by obedience to His commands. And in baptism, our idols are torn down. And our hearts are purified for God alone to dwell in this temple. The idols are gone because you shall have no other gods before Yahweh your God. You want to talk to somebody about that? Can we help you with that? I would love to. I would love to open the word and show you the plan that he has to save us. And so if you want to do that this morning, you can talk to me or to one of the shepherds. Come forward and let us know while we stand and sing a hymn together.